Well, turn with me this morning, if you would, to the Gospel of John. Now, as you turn there, we are going to, this morning we're going to be working our way through John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now, my guess is that the narrative we're going to work through this morning is one that is probably familiar to most, if not all of us. This morning, we're going to work through the first miracle of Jesus recorded in John's gospel. And that first miracle is Jesus when he turns water into wine. And actually, given the timeline of the life of Christ, this is actually the very first public miracle he performed. And John writes in John 2 verse 11, he says, this is the first of his signs. So what we have then this morning as we come into the gospel of John is really the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Now, to be honest, I've been wrestling. I think that's the right term. I've been wrestling with this text for weeks. I knew this was what I was going to be preaching on next. I've been working my way through it slowly, thinking through it. And of all the miracles recorded in John's gospel, this one I think is possibly the hardest on the outset. Excuse me. Now you may be wondering why. Why, How could this be the hardest? Well, that's because it seems like kind of an obscure miracle. I mean, the details are basic enough, right? We'll go through the event in detail as we work through the passage this morning, but the general details are well known. Jesus is at a wedding. They run out of wine at the wedding. Jesus Jesus turns the water into wine. What could be so difficult about that? Well, it's not necessarily the details of the event that make it difficult. It's what to do with them. Of all the miracles recorded by John, of which there are eight, this miracle does not have a discourse of Jesus to go along with it to help us understand what the author is trying to communicate by writing and recording this miracle. Now, in general, John wrote at the end of this gospel in John 21, verse 25, here's what he says. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's how he ends this gospel account. So notice John then... He, there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John witnessed a countless, probably unfathomable number of miracles. Yet out of the thousands of miracles that John witnesses, he specifically records just eight. And the very first miracle of those that he records is not recorded by any of the other gospel writers, and that's the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. So that is the ultimate question. The ultimate question is, why out of all the miracles that he witnessed, did John put this miracle in his gospel account? It isn't an accident. It was very intentional on his part as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that was the question that was eluding me, was why this miracle? It seems, like I said, somewhat obscure and random. And I don't know if that has been your experience as you've thought about this particular narrative. That's what I was wrestling with. So my prayer this morning is that as we work through this passage, that together we can come to see the beauty of what is here. That we can see the wonder of what is going on in this narrative. That we can see the glory of what is here to help us answer that question. 
Now, one thing that is nice as we approach any narrative in this gospel in particular that John gives us is that he specifically tells us his purpose in writing the gospel. He says near the end of this account in John 20, verse 31, he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wants to give overwhelming evidence that Jesus is God. And that people would respond by repenting and putting their faith in Jesus for salvation. That means that every miracle and every discourse that John uses is intended to reveal some glory of Christ. So one thing we can be sure, even if we're not sure exactly of all the details, one thing we can be sure on the outset here is that this miracle was intentionally chosen by God or by John to pull back just a piece of the veil and reveal the glory of what is underneath, to reveal the glory of Jesus as God. So with that in mind, now we're going to read this narrative. We're going to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, first of all, then on the outset, we need to have an idea of the setting or the context for the narrative uh, that we just read. So to remind ourselves then of the setting of this narrative, the second half of John chapter 1, what happened was we were introduced to Jesus' first five disciples. First was John and Andrew, and then John went and brought his brother Simon, whom we know as Peter, to Jesus. Then they go to go to Galilee, and Jesus picks up Philip. Philip goes and brings Nathanael. And so then at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here, these are the five disciples that are walking with Jesus right now as we come to the beginning of John chapter 2. And if we remember the events that began this, this series, John actually records a series of seven consecutive days. And those seven consecutive days started in John chapter 1, verses 19, and continue through our narrative today. And the culmination of those seven days then is found in John chapter 2, verse 1, when it says three, it says on the third day. This is three days after Jesus had revealed his omniscience to Nathanael. So that's what brings us then, that's at least the context, the time frame that we're looking at at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as we come to uh, the beginning of John chapter 2. Now Jesus is in that area with his disciples, then we see that he's, invi- he's invited to a wedding. Jesus' mother was there, so that would give some sort of indication that these were probably friends of the family in some way that they were invited all to the wedding. 
Now that seems innocent enough, an invitation to a wedding. Well, as we know, with Jesus, there is always something more than it seems. So to help us understand this, this setting of the wedding, we need to have some at least basic understanding of Jewish weddings. The process of getting married in that culture at that time was a little different than what we experience here in Western American culture. In Jewish culture at the time, getting married was a process, and this process involved three distinct phases. And the first phase was just called mutual commitment. This was a preliminary arrangement prior to being legally betrothed. And it would have been common for these matches that were made to be made by a matchmaker in the community and arranged through the father in the home. Now, this Monday, tomorrow is my son Asher's birthday, and usually on, the, on their birthday, I let my children they get to choose a movie that they want to watch as a family. Well, this year he chose a classic he hasn't seen before, which I'm sure probably a lot of you have, maybe not everybody, uh, a musical that's a particular favorite of mine, which is Fiddler on the Roof. And one of the scenes, if, if you're familiar with it, one of the scenes at the beginning of the movie involves this matchmaker who comes to the main character's wife to let her know she has found a match for her oldest daughter. And that's kind of the picture we have here of this mutual commitment, this first phase of a wedding or a marriage in this culture uh, is this arranged marriage starts with this mutual commitment often made through a matchmaker. That, however, leads to the next phase, which is the engagement. Now, engagement during that time was different than today. Today, if you get engaged, you are not legally bound to get married to the person. You can break off the engagement. Now, perhaps with some social consequences, but there aren't any legal consequences for breaking off an engagement. Also, in order to break off an engagement in our culture, no legal action is required. But in Jewish culture, at that time, an engagement period was started through the establishment of a legal binding contract. For all purposes, the two individuals that were legally betrothed were married, although they didn't live together. They didn't have interactions like that together as a married couple. But if, if they wanted to end that engagement, it actually required a legal divorce. Think of the narrative of Joseph, right? In the narrative of Joseph with Mary, Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant and he plans to put her away quietly or to divorce her quietly. And an angel has to come and visit in a dream to tell him, no, go ahead with the marriage. And that's this engagement period. Well, this engagement period would typically last for around a year. During that year, the groom, what he was doing, he's preparing a home for his bride while the bride made personal preparations. Although the bride knew to expect the groom after about a year, she didn't know the exact day or hour. It was the father who would give final approval for the groom to return and to collect his bride. So for that reason, for that reason, the bride kept her oil lamps ready at all times just in case the groom came in the night so she would be ready when the groom came to go with the groom for the final part of the marriage. And whenever that came, when the groom came to get the bride with much fanfare, the final phase of this process occurred, which the word they use translated just simply is called marriage. They would go and they would finalize their vows and then they would consummate the marriage. And once that had occurred, they would enter in what would typically be a week-long period of wedding feast, which sounds great, right? A week-long wedding feast to celebrate this finalization of the marriage. 
And that's where we find ourselves this morning. When it says that they were, they were invited to a wedding, they have come and they are here during this wedding feast period of a Jewish wedding. That's what they're coming to enjoy. And when we get to verse 10, and we read verse 10, it says, you know, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. We have this indication that they are sometime in this seven-day period of time. They haven't come to the end of the feast, but they're in the feast long enough that they've run out of wine. So they're, they're in the, somewhere in that period of time when they're there. So that's the setting. That's what helps set the stage, or helps set the stage for us this morning of our text. And then that brings us to the crisis. The crisis. Well, at, at the feast, a crisis comes to Jesus' attention. And we see this in verses 3 through 5. It says, when the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there are several things we need to work through in un- order to understand for us, to help us understand really what is going on in this interaction between Jesus and Mary. Mary was involved in some way with the wedding, at least en- enough to the point where she noticed and she recognizes that the wine has run out. But that, there's lots of questions here that need to be answered. The first of which, why would it be a crisis for the wine to run out at this wedding? Well, for most of us, that probably wouldn't be such a big deal if we ran out of one kind of drink, we would just provide another. However, in that culture, the groom was the one who was responsible to ensure that there was proper preparation for the wedding feast. That would include all the details. He would also be the one financially responsible for it. They didn't, they, and at that time, they didn't have a lot of options when it came for, what, for them to drink. To run out of wine at a wedding feast would have been a massive social embarrassment for the groom. If the groom, here, here would have been the thought, right? If the groom can't properly prepare and plan for the wedding feast, what is that going to say about his marriage? What is that going to say about him as a husband if he can't properly prepare for this wedding feast, the, this wedding time, what he's been preparing for for a year, and yet he's allowed the wine to run out? This to be clear, like for us, this wouldn't be a big deal probably, but for them, it would have been a very huge deal. And Mary recognizes this. She, she recognizes this is going on, and she goes to Jesus. Which raises another question. Why does she go to Jesus with this? After all, Jesus is just a wedding guest. What is Jesus supposed to do about it? Now, as we read the text, personally, as I look at it, it isn't clear to me that she thought Jesus would do a miracle, just that Jesus would do something. Remember, uh, we know all about Jesus' life, but if we think about this period of time that we find ourselves this morning, up to this point in Jesus' life, he has performed no miracles. He didn't go around as he was growing up performing miracles. This is his first one, his first public miracle. So I find it doubtful that she expected him to perform some kind of miracle when the wedding feast ran out of wine. Why then? Why then go to Jesus with this problem? And I think the answer is actually much simpler. Jesus was her firstborn son. And there is every indication, as we look at all the gospel accounts, that by the time Jesus starts his public ministry, that Joseph 
is dead. And after his death, Jesus, as the firstborn, would have stepped into that kind of role in the home with his family. So you can imagine, as he grew up, Mary would have gone to him with all kinds of things. And she has many years of experience, if you can imagine, with Jesus always giving the right answer in the right way all the time. All the years with Jesus growing up as her firstborn son would have put her in a position for her to naturally go to him with a problem. And that's what I think is going on here. She, she is doing what she has done for potentially years now. She goes to Jesus with her problem, and she expects him, as he always done before, to know exactly what to do. But after Mary tells Jesus what is going on, we read this very interesting statement by Jesus to his mother. He says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like a strange response to a problem involving wine running out at a wedding. And on the surface, it also seems somewhat disrespectful. So what is Jesus saying to his mom, and why is he saying it? First, Jesus calls her woman. Now, in our culture, just to be clear, I, I don't recommend you use that kind of expression when you're talking to a woman. Right? If you look at a woman and you start a statement by saying, woman, uh, that's disrespectful. It is talking down to a woman to say that. It, however, if we look at the word used here by Jesus and we understand it in its cultural context, it does not have the same connotation in our text that it would in our current culture. The word used here for woman is a polite it's a polite but not intimate way to address a woman. So an equivalent, I'll give you an equivalent in our culture, especially right here in the South. An equivalent in our culture would be the use of ma'am. Right? So when we say yes ma'am or no ma'am, we're being respectful. Not necessarily being intimate relationally, but we're being respectful. It is polite, but it is not an intimate, affectionate form of addressing a woman. So that is really more the flavor of what Jesus is saying to her when he calls her woman. But secondarily, Jesus asks her, what does this have to do with me? Now this phrase is a Semitic idiom used, and it's used commonly in Scripture to distance the two parties involved. So for example, we see the same expression used several times throughout the Gospels when we see interactions of demons with Jesus. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus casts out demons. He casts demons out of two men in the country of the Gadarenes. And wh when the demons, though, in these men, when they first see Jesus, this is what they proclaim in Matthew 8, 29. They, they see Jesus and they say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And that is that expression, that same expression, what have you to do with us? And when we look at it in Matthew... The demons are distancing. They're making a distinction. They're distancing themselves from Jesus as the Son of God. We are demons and you are the Son of God and, and we are, there's this distance between us. They're making that distinction. So in Jesus addressing Mary, his mom as woman, and then asking this question, he, hear me rightly, he is giving his mom a mild rebuke. He is telling her, here at the outset of his public ministry, that he is distancing himself from any human advice, agenda, 
or manipulation. He is, he's really he's distancing his mom in that way, saying that he is about his father's business, not a human one. Also, he is clearly communicating that although Mary is his earthly mom, she must approach Jesus just as everybody else. He is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he is to be approached with repentance and faith. He must be something more to her than a son. He must be her Messiah. She doesn't get any special inroad to Jesus, any special inroad to salvation than other people because she's his earthly mother. No, she must come to him as Messiah. She must repent and put her trust in him as her Savior. And that distancing, Jesus is clearly communicating in this statement to his mom. But then thirdly, after he says that, Jesus follows this expression to to Mary with the statement, my hour has not yet come. Now Jesus uses this expression four other times in John's gospel. And each time he's communicating the same thing. We give two examples. Two examples. So in John 7 verse 30, in John 7 verse 30, it says, so they were seeking to arrest him. They were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So we see that same expression, his hour had not yet come. And then we have a transition point that helps us understand what this means in John chapter 12. And I'm going to read this whole section. It's John chapter 12, 20 through 28. And here we see a transition to help us understand what Jesus means when he uses this expression. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 28, it says, Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. So up to this point, he has said, and there's other examples, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And then we see Jesus saying here in this moment, the hour has come for what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again every single time we see this phrase it is clearly referring to jesus's death and resurrection the the hour at which jesus was to be glorified through his death his burial his resurrection and ultimately his ascension back to the father he knew when his hour was come and nothing can make it happen sooner or later, it was going to happen precisely at the right time on God's divine timetable. So that's what Jesus means when he uses this expression. So that kind of leaves one last question, really, to answer with this interaction, and that is, why does Jesus say that to Mary here at the wedding? 
It seems like an odd expression to say to Mary at a wedding where wine ran out. He hadn't started his public ministry yet. He hadn't said anything yet about his death and resurrection. So why would Jesus tell Mary this after hearing that wine had run out at a wedding? I'm going to leave that question for the moment because we have to understand more about the miracle that we, to be able to answer that question. But I promise we will come back around after we look at the miracle and we will answer that question of why Jesus would say this at this time. It helps us with the connection later on. Now, ultimately, though, G- Mary would not, though, would not have fully understood what Jesus was saying, but she understood the tone. She understood what Jesus was trying to communicate with her. She understood this as a mild rebuke for what it was. Now, I think you could imagine that that would have been very hard for Mary. Right? She just spent 30 years of her life being mother to this boy, now a man, and now he's clearly distancing himself from the normal aspects of that kind of relationship, like normally a mom does or should have that kind of influence on her son, yet he is making it clear that that cannot be the case between the two of us. It cannot, politely, but it cannot be the case between the two of us. Yet, what we see in her response, in verse 5, we see that she acknowledges and understands what Jesus has just communicated to her. She steps aside, and she tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. She gets out of the way, Still trusting that he would do something, but she gets out of the way of what Jesus is going to do. So now that brings us to the miracle itself. And we're going to see that then in verses 6 through 10. So now the miracle in verses 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus turns to the servants, has them fill up these jars with water. But these aren't just any jars, to be clear. These are, he gives them a specific description. He says these are six stone water jars that have been used for the Jewish rites of purification. So why these jars and what are the Jewish rites of purification? Well, to help us understand, we need to turn briefly to the Old Testament. In the, the book of Leviticus, which I know is everyone's favorite read, Right? The book of Leviticus, there are all kinds of ceremonial law. And there's all kinds of ceremonial law, a whole section involving uncleanness. And this section provides instructions, not only for what will make a person unclean, but also how do you respond if a person is found themselves, if they find themselves unclean, or they're in a period of uncleanness, which could be everything from, from uh, touching a dead body, for example, would make you unclean. Right, so there are lots of things that can make a person unclean and what to do if you found yourself in that situation. But we read specifically in Leviticus 15, verse 11, and says this. <coughs> Leviticus 15, 11. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches, some sort of bodily discharge, without having risked his hands in water, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. So that's, that's the verse. Well, during the time between the end of the Old Testament and when Jesus came, there grew amongst the Jewish 
culture and oral tradition amongst the Jewish religious leaders as they sought to live by the law of God. And they took passages like this and they tried to say, okay, what are all the myriad of situations that this passage could apply to? And in the process, they added law to what the people of God had been given. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, we have what you've seen referenced throughout the Gospels is the traditions of the elders. And the traditions, though, of the elders at that time is seen as as authoritative as Scripture. And one of those examples is this passage. They took this passage, which is very clearly about a very specific situation, and they expanded it to a general hand washing. (coughs) So before Jews ate, They wouldn't just wash their hands to become clean before they touch food like hopefully everybody in here does before they eat. They would ceremonially ceremonially wash their hands so they wouldn't be unclean in biblical terms, in that biblical sense. And we get a clear explanation. We see this clearly in Mark. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, we get a, a clear picture of this Jewish rites of purification, this hand washing. It says, when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. To be clear, in Mark... This isn't the disciples have their hands full of dirt and they didn't wash their hands before they ate. Okay? The disciples hadn't sinned. This isn't Scripture. This is the tradition of the elders of the Pharisees that they had elevated to the level of Scripture. This washing of hands, actually, they prescribed, was to be done in a very particular way, with a particular amount of water, in a particular order, with a particular blessing that you were to say at some point in that washing in order for it to be right. It was very ritualistic. <coughs> and that's what we have here. They would do the same thing with, with, cup, with cups and bowls and the things that they would, they would eat with. It wasn't just washing it to be clean. It was this ceremonial washing that they saw as making it clean. Thanks. So that's, that's the Jewish rites of purification. But also notice that he specifically talks and he he mentions these jars and he says they're stone jars. They actually use stone jars instead of earthenware jars for a very particular reason. There's a verse in in Leviticus also that talks about if anything falls, if any of them, these unclean things, they fall into an earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean. So they believed that earthenware vessels would hold on to uncleanness and therefore weren't to be used for this kind of water. They, however, did not believe that stone jars had the same problem. So they kept the water that they used for this rite of purification for ceremonial hand washing and washing of cups and bowls and all those things that they ate with. They would do it specifically in stone jars because they saw these stone jars as not being able to become unclean. So that is what is referred to in our narrative. These are, these, these are stone jars, like I said, that would have been filled with water and the guests would have washed their hands ceremonially before eating. They would have been used to wash plates, bowls, utensils, whatever, ceremonially washing them to make them clean. So in a general sense, 
for help to help us this morning, these stone jars that were used for Jewish, Jewish purification rites represented then this entire order of Jewish law and custom. They represented the entire Old Testament system of purification for sins. That's what this was to symbolize, was this washing or cleansing on something that made you unclean or sinful. And so it's this entire purification system represented in these stone jars that were used for the ceremonial washing. And what does Jesus do? He has the servants fill these large jars, which, according to the account, would have held a total amount of 120 to 180 gallons. That's a lot, right? A lot of water. And it would have held that, and he had them fill it up to the brim. Then, very simply, he tells the servants to draw some water out, take it to the master of the feast. Now, to be honest, up to that point in the narrative, we, we actually don't know what has happened, right? If we're just reading this and we don't know anything about the story, it seems Jesus had these servants fill jars with water and take the water to the master of the feast. Well, the master of the feast drinks the water, and then that's where we see that uh, it says in verse 9, and the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. That's really, that is the indication that we have here that Jesus turned water to wine. But when the master of the feast drinks the water that is turned to wine, he's actually so astonished that he interrupts what's going on, and he, he comes to the groom, and he announces this in verse 10. He says, everyone ser- serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. <coughs> well, this seems rather practical, right? If you're thinking about a week-long celebration, make a lot of sense. You serve the best wine first, then after several days of celebration, the guest's senses are dulled, you bring out the poor wine. It seems this wedding feast had moved through that progression. And that's, that's what the master of the feast, when he's given this wine, that's what he is expecting. He's expecting wine that isn't as good as what was presented first. But when the master of the feast was given this, right, he tastes it, and to his surprise, it is not as expected. Not only is it better than he expected. It is actually the best wine out of everything that had been served so far. I got to believe that if Jesus, the Son of God, made wine, it would have been the best wine they'd ever tasted in their lives. And it is now being served near the end of the feast. It is so significant socially, it is so shocking socially, that the master of the feast makes sure to point this out. He makes a big point of it being the best. And from the text, it seems clear that only a few people knew what Jesus had done. We, verse 11, we can see that the disciples knew, the five that were with him. Obviously, the servants knew that because Jesus had done this miracle in front of them. But outside of those people, we have no indication that anyone else knew. So that brings us then to that important question, what does this miracle mean? What is Jesus trying to communicate? What is the gospel writer trying to communicate about Jesus by including this miracle in his gospel? Well, we have spent all this time trying to gain this cultural understanding of what's going on to help us. That's, those are going to be our clues. They're going to help us understand what is trying to be communicated. So first of all, what's being communicated? First of all, this, we're going to look at the stone jars. The stone jars used for the Jewish rites of for, purification. First, it is no accident, like we said, it is no accident that these stone jars were used in this miracle. I gotta believe that there were other vessels 
present. There were other things present in that home that could have been used. Jesus didn't have to use these stone jars. As a matter of fact, as the Son of God, he could have just caused wine to appear in everyone's cups. But instead, he has the servants fill these specific stone jars for this miracle. This is intentional, and this is because of what the stone jars represent. As we already discussed, these stone jars then were a symbol of the entire ceremonial purification system contained in the law in the Old Testament. And so in doing this, Jesus is making a statement about this old system of purification. And the question then is, what is Jesus trying to communicate about it? Okay, so secondarily then, Jesus, not only were the stone jars intentional, used for the Jewish rites of purification, but he has them fill those stone jars to the brim. I think this served a couple purposes. For one, for one, it meant that no one could claim anything else had been added to the water to make it wine or to look like wine. It, it, it takes away any other explanation except for the miraculous. It makes it clear that the water turned to wine was an act of God. That's only one purpose. I think it's also a picture of completion or fulfillment. The stone jars, if they're a picture then for us of this old purification system of the Old Testament law, now these are complete or they are fulfilled. This purification is now fulfilled in Christ. Jesus makes this clear at the uh, outset of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus came to fulfill all that the law pointed to. These jars used to hold water that was used for purification were only meant as a picture. To be clear, this, they couldn't actually cleanse anything from sin. This water that sat in these stone jars couldn't purify a person. It couldn't purify their things. It was all meant to point to our utter sinfulness and need for spiritual purification. Our need for cleansing. To communicate to us we cannot purify ourselves from uncleanness. We need someone to come and to cleanse us. Can you imagine with me for a moment how frustrating that must have been during that time in the life of Israel? Day in and day out, in the Old Testament, God had given them signs and symbols to make it abundantly clear that they needed cleansing from sin. In the same time, God also gave them a system that had to be repeated. Constant sacrifices, constant cleansing with water, constant reminders of an imperfect system that was never to be clear, never meant to actually cleanse them from sin. It was all meant to show them the utter futility of what they were doing. Cleansing from sin has always, has always been by faith. On that side of the cross, it was faith in the coming Messiah, the one that all this stuff was meant to point them to. Believe in, put your faith in the one who was to come and the work that that one was to do. On this side of the cross, it is faith in the same Messiah, but now we know the Messiah has come. We have and can see the work that He has done, and we put our faith in Him. But during the time of John's Gospel, they were longing. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. 
And now Jesus, in this act of filling these stone jars with water to the brim, is communicating that the time has come. The old system is fulfilled, completed, and it is being replaced with something else. It is actually being replaced with something far better. Jesus turns the water into something better. Third, Jesus doesn't just fulfill, he doesn't just complete this old system of purification, he replaces it with something better. Jesus was going to purify his people with something better than water. This is where it is important for us to understand the importance of what the wine symbolizes. To help us understand what the wine symbolizes, we've got to turn once again to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are many descriptions surrounding the coming kingdom of Messiah. We're just going to look at two, two examples in the Old Testament to help us understand this imagery, this picture of wine. And the first is in Joel chapter 2. First is in Joel chapter 2. And in the first 11 verses of Joel chapter 2, Joel gives a powerful description of the coming day of the Lord. This is a day when God will return and he's going to bring judgment. It is a day of terror and awe where the wrath of God against sin will be on full display for all in the world to see this coming day of the Lord. And then in Joel 2, verses 12 through 17, he, after, after Joel gives this picture of what that will be like, he calls for the people to turn to God in repentance. In light of this coming day of the Lord, the response should be one of repentance, crying out to God for mercy and for grace. But then Joel follows this with a description of how God will respond to his people. And we read this in Joel chapter 2, verses 24 through 27. And he's describing what that day of redemption, when Jesus returns and he redeems and he restores his people, what that's going to be like. And, and he writes, The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame." So part of this picture then of this restoration of the people of Israel when the coming age and kingdom of Messiah is this overflowing, overabundance of wine. And one more example. This is Amos, Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. That's what Amos said. Amos says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. The picture of the same period of time. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. That is a picture of an abundance of wine. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So in Amos, again, we see the same picture. Part of the abundance 
of the coming kingdom of God, of this coming kingdom of the Messiah when they were expecting the Messiah to come is described with this overflowing abundance of fruitfulness pictured in this wine. This is the wine of the coming messianic kingdom. That is the better thing that Jesus turns the water into. He fulfills or completes the old purification system with a better purification, ushering in. Listen to me, he ushers in in this moment the messianic age. And how is Jesus to purify his people? How is he to do that? How, How is he to bring in this abundance of redemption and restoration to his people? And this is where now we can go back and we can answer that question. Why did Jesus, when the wedding ran out of wine, why did he tell his mother his hour had not yet come? Something that is always, always connected to his glorification and his death and his resurrection. But when he tells her that, he was saying it was not time for his full messianic glory to be revealed. She is referring to mere wine But Jesus sees the deeper symbolism and meaning that she wouldn't have. Mary didn't understand the symbolism of the wine, but Jesus did. Jesus knew that in this miracle, he would be connecting the old system of purification with his glorification and his death and resurrection. That is why Jesus tells Mary, my hour has not yet come when she tells him about the wine. Jesus in this miracle is ushering in the wine of the new kingdom. He is ushering in the purification of the new kingdom with his own life. And this will be his ultimate glorification. Lastly, we we have to see the already not yet aspect of what Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled the promises and the pictures from the Old Testament, but not in the way that they expected. He did it not in the way they expected. And In Florence, Italy, in the late 1400s, there were two artists who were commissioned to make a sculpture depicting King David from the Bible. Now, the work they had commissioned for, however, was never finished. And they both actually started, but they ultimately rejected this enormous block of marble because they said it had too many imperfections in it. And because of that, this enormous block of marble sat dormant for 25 years. So 25 years later, a young, already well-accomplished artist came along, and the city wanted to commission him to complete what the other two artists had failed to do. And, And he looks at this block of marble, and where they saw imperfection, he saw the potential for perfection. So he takes on this assignment with enthusiasm. As a matter of fact, he worked on it diligently for two years. He labored continuously on the sculpture, sleeping sporadically, rarely eating. He, he was secretive about his work. He wouldn't let anyone watch him work. He didn't allow anyone else to see it until the time that it was to be complete. Now imagine with me, if you will, the growing anticipation of what was to be revealed. Make it clear, everybody during that time knew what the finished work was to depict. They expected a sculpture of David. However, the common way of depicting David during that time in history was to depict him the moment after his victory over Goliath. Several famous artists of that time had already depicted their own version of David standing over Goliath's severed head. So some version of that is what these people expected. 
So imagine that's what you've been expecting for years, and the moment the big reveal comes, the artist brings you to this sculpture. Let's, let's imagine, if you will, that it's covered with a cloth. He's about to reveal this work. No one's seen the completed work. And then at the right time, the cloth is revealed and, and are removed, and what is revealed is not David standing atop his defeated foe, but instead Michelangelo's David, depicting David the moment before he goes to battle with Goliath. It's unexpected, but it is absolutely breathtaking. It is David, but it is so much better than what they actually expected. It is so much more glorious than what they could have ever imagined. And, and we know now that it is possibly the most famous and possibly the most amazing sculpture piece that has ever been created. And that is what has happened in this narrative. In the Old Testament, God gave clues. He gave hints. He gave pictures. He gave types. He gave shadows of what was to come. And all in Israel, they knew what to expect. They expected the Messiah. They knew that one day God was going to pull back the curtain and He was going to reveal the Messiah. However, they expected that when the curtain was pulled back, it was going to reveal the Messiah coming in judgment and obvious outward victory. They expected David after he defeats Goliath, but instead they got something better. They didn't get a Messiah that only brought physical redemption to his people. They got a Messiah that brought what all the glimpses in the Old Testament were pointing to. A Messiah that would bring spiritual redemption to his people through something better than the old system of purification. Through the redemption of his own blood, ushering in a better messianic age than they could have ever imagined. He revealed the better, overflowing, abundant wine of the messianic kingdom. They only saw one coming of Messiah. They didn't see two separate comings. To be clear, Jesus did establish a kingdom in his first coming, only it wasn't a physical kingdom, but it's a spiritual one. Jesus established a spiritual kingdom in his first coming, but it points to, so that's the already, the not yet, it points to a physical kingdom yet to come. To be clear, the promise of the physical messianic kingdom will be fulfilled. Jesus is going to return, and when he does, he will usher in the day of the Lord. He will establish a physical kingdom here on earth. He will rule and reign with his people. He will usher in the overflowing wine of the promised kingdom in the Old Testament. What this miracle is, it's a living parable. It's a living picture of what John says actually in John 1.17. And in John 1.17, in the prologue to John's gospel, he writes, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. The water of the law has been fulfilled and replaced with the wine of the messianic age ushered in through Jesus. Well, how did the disciples respond to this miracle then? Well, they responded in verse 11. It says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John, as he's writing this in his old age and he's reflecting back on what happened, he sees it for what it is. 
In this miracle, Jesus manifested His glory. In other words, Jesus pulled back a, a, a corner of the curtain of His character and He allowed us to see a glimpse or a picture of the awe and wonder of who He is. Jesus revealed His deity while making a powerful statement in this event. And in response, in response the disciples believed. They believed. There, there's no indication, at least in the text, that the servants who saw the same miracle believed at least that we have recorded. But these five men, they've been waiting for the Messiah. They're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, even though they didn't understand everything about Him. But they were bolstered in the faith. They believed. Now, I can't read that verse and not go back to the purpose of this Gospel. Primarily for John, it is evangelistic. Every narrative... And every discourse that John records is meant to reveal the wonder and glory of Jesus. They're meant to show that Jesus is God so that those who do not believe in Him may come to Him in repentance and faith. So if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, don't see a glimpse of the glory of Christ and walk away unchanged. Repent. Turn from your sins. Place your trust in Jesus Christ alone. The only one, the one who provides the only source of true purification for our sins through his own blood. This is the first miracle because Jesus is starting his public ministry and he's telling his disciples that now, now begins the messianic age. And then he spends the rest of his life here on earth revealing truths about this kingdom that he came to establish. But it begins here. It begins here with the wine of Messiah's kingdom. Well, one of the most, as we come close to an end here, one of the most important but neglected, neglected aspects of our journey as Christians is meditation. Now, when I say that, I don't mean what most people in society mean when they hear the word meditation. When using that word, what usually comes to mind is someone sitting on the floor and their eyes closed and they're emptying their minds of any and all thought. To be clear, that's not Christian. As Christians, we are commanded to use our minds intentionally. We are told to focus our thoughts specifically. And what we are to focus our thoughts on is Scripture. Don Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines, he defines meditation in this way. Deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture or upon life from a scriptural perspective for the purpose of understanding, application, and prayer. You're asking, what does that have to do with the text this morning? Well, the entire Gospel of John is meant to do exactly what John 2.11 says. It's meant to manifest or reveal Jesus' glory. This entire book is one big picture of the manifestation of Jesus' glory. And although that revealing of His glory is meant to open sinners' eyes to the truth of Christ so they can come to Him in repentance and faith, it is also a means by which we grow as Christians. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Do you want to grow in your walk with Christ? Do you want to grow in greater Christ-likeness? Then one thing to do, one thing to do is to meditate intentional, focused thought on the person of Jesus Christ. Spend time thinking and meditating on the truths of Christ that we have even learned about Him this morning. This morning, Jesus replaces the old system of purification with a better purification through His own blood, ushering, ushering in the Messianic age. The Messianic age that, to be honest with you and I, are currently living in 
as we await the return of our Messiah to completely fulfill all that was promised through establishing not just a spiritual kingdom, but He's coming to establish a physical one in which we will spend the rest of eternity ruling and reigning with our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the truth that we must take away with us this morning. That is the truth of our glorious Savior that I want you to meditate on. So this morning then as we leave this place and we all go to the normalness of life that we have waiting for us, spend time meditating, intentionally thinking and dwelling upon the person of Jesus revealed to us. Listen, you, you don't need platitudes from me. You don't need pithy, clever statements. You need a person. You need Jesus. And my prayer this morning is that you get a vision of Jesus that will spur you to deeper meditation on Him. Look to Him. Dwell on the truth of who He is. Walk away with a clear picture of this glorious God and Savior that we serve, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.